Amen. Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Man, worship is just a good thing, isn't it? And just to get to remind ourselves of who God is and why we actually follow Him, it is so good to have this kind of a reminder. But y'all, we got a task to do today. We are going to cover the entire Bible. Genesis through Revelation, that is what we are on about today. So, uh, in this 30-plus series, we've been going back to basics. So, on Easter, we talked about the gospel and all that means, and that the word gospel was someone else's word that we stole, uh, and now we use it to mean our own thing, because we think it's better than that original meaning anyway. Last week, we talked about baptism, and that in somehow... Uh, in baptism, we identify with Christ and like in his death, we're buried in the waters of baptism and then raised to new life with him also. Or maybe put a more Chad way, I don't know how you go into the tank, but it dies and what comes out is wholly dedicated to Jesus. But if we're going to be baptizing people with this 30 plus series, if we're going to be uh, looking at that big 30 out in the lobby that every time someone gets baptized, a light goes on for the next year, uh, we have to know what story we're baptizing people into, right? Like, we have to understand this because, like, as Christians, we claim that this Bible is the baseline for everything we believe, things that we think, arguments we have, logic about our lives, how we apply things, how we're going to actually obey Jesus, who Jesus is. All of that, we say, is based on the Bible. Since that's the case, we kind of got to know what's in here. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to skip 99.5% of it, and we're going to summarize a lot of the like narrative and how things go and how the story works, but where we're going to stop and pause periodically is at the different key promises that God makes, and we're going to trace those, how they actually lead us through Scripture. So, if you are in need of notes today, let me invite you to turn your Bible to this handy-dandy page at the front called the Table of Contents. That will be able a way where you're able to chase along just all the references that are being made. If it's a scripture we're actually reading, I have them up for the screen for us, so you won't have to necessarily flip there. But follow along, make notes, make different things that you remember what we're talking about, what we're doing, and so that we can all get through this together in hopefully less than 21 hours. Make sense? Yeah, thank you, Kay. I, I don't need luck. We need the Spirit. That's what we need. Um, so... Y'all ready for this? Full Bible. All right, we're going to need to wake you up. So let's do some audience participation. What is the first sentence of the Bible? In the beginning. All right, let's, all right, maybe let's do this a different way. Um, complete this sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to get there. I believe in you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stuff up there, stuff down here. If, he, if you can see it, he made it. If you can't see it, he made that stuff too. Even the air that we breathe. God also separated out like land from water and separated day from night. And as the pinnacle moment on page one of the Bible, he creates humanity. Humanity is created in the image of God, and it's given a role in this good creation to actually be. And so at the end of the first couple of pages of the Bible, God has made something functioning. It's good. It works as it's intended for. The plan came together. 
everything is functioning well, it has a purpose, it has a goal, it has a home, things are as they are supposed to be. But then, Genesis 3 through 11 happens. Uh, the first people, Adam and Eve, get tricked into believing that God might just be holding out on them, and so they do some disobedience, which leads to sin and death entering the world. Uh, when we say the word sin in this case, we're not talking about my toddler lying about brushing her teeth. We're talking about evil, like actual, real evil. That power of sin enters the world. And with it comes the power of death. If you've had older relatives pass, you're very well acquainted with what death is like. And it gets worse. We start killing each other. Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. The following chapters tell us that humanity gets so bent out of shape and evil that everything we're trying to do is terrible, so much so that God has to hit a massive reset button with a flood and only eight people survive it with a guy named Noah on a boat. From there, they get off the boat. They begin to repopulate the earth. They figure things out, but then... In Genesis 11, they try to use all the new technology that they have at their fingertips uh, to build themselves a tower, which is actually a city complex, and a bunch of other things, with the intent to bend God to their will, which God will have absolutely no part of. So whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, we have something beautiful, functional, made, by the end of Genesis 11... We have that. Instead of something that works, we have brokenness. Instead of being in good relationship with one another, we have brokenness. Instead of doing things the way God intended it to work, we have brokenness. Thank God the story doesn't stop there. God does something absolutely unbelievable. See, humans, we made this mess. But then God figures out a plan to put this back together. Plan A with no plan B. He comes to humans and says, I'm going to use you to put it back together. Which is nuts if you think about it because we're the ones that screwed it up. If there was a certain party not worth trusting, it would be people. But as it turns out, God loved us so stinking much, he made us a part of the plan to fix it. And so in Genesis chapter 12, he comes to a guy by the name of Abram, who he will later change his name to Abraham, and he says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. All people on earth will be blessed through you. As in, God says to this guy, Abraham, you're the plan. 
And God makes two very specific promises. It's land and family. As in, hey, go from your land. Notice that God didn't tell him where, by the way. I think that's hilarious. God's like, start walking. I'll tell you when you get there. Uh, But he says, go from your land. I'll give you a home, a place to be, somewhere to exist, somewhere that's yours. And I will give you a family. That family eventually grows into a large extended family that becomes a nation. But this is God's plan A, no plan B idea of how to fix things. From there, God's word comes to pass. Abraham, at the ripe young age of 100, has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob gets in a wrestling match with God, gets renamed to Israel, which hilariously, that word means people who struggle with God. And then, that group of people, unfortunately, there's a famine in their land that they were promised, and so... They end up going to Egypt in order to find some food. Eventually, they become a threat because they grow into an entire nation, the nation of Israel, as you would probably call them. Uh, But Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gets a little threatened by them, and so he decides to oppress them and make them a bunch of slaves. But the problem with that, there's a lot of problems with that. A lot of problems with that. Not the least of which is that the plan can't do what the plan is supposed to do if it's enslaved. And so God, seeing this situation, raises up a guy named Moses to deliver the people. And God directly confronts Egypt. Those ten plagues from the book of Exodus are direct shots at different gods of Egypt. Egypt was super polytheistic. They had a god for everything. Even their pharaoh was considered a god. And after ten rounds of taking it on the chin from our god, they had enough. God marches our people, these people of Israel, out into freedom through the Red Sea. And on the other side, they have to have the DTR conversation. Uh, you'll define the relationship. Like, y'all ever been on a date and think you're a couple of dates in, things are going pretty well, you know, you're kind of grooving along, you're like, yeah, this might work out, this is going pretty good. But then she looks across the table and hits you with a, uh, so where are we? Yeah. That stomach-dropping moment, yeah, that's the conversation that God has to have with his people. So in Exodus chapter 19, God defines the relationship and how things are going to be. Exodus 19, starting in verse 1, says this, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through Moses, God defines the relationship and he says, the promise I'm making here is that your role is to be a kingdom of priests. Now, we don't really have priests today. 
we have Catholic priests, but it's a very, it's a different job. And depending on how you date it, this Exodus situation is between 1440 or 1250 BC, depends on how you want to date it. But short, pers- short version, long time ago. And priests had a very specific set of jobs. Two specifically. Rule number one, be as much like the God that you served as possible. However that God would interact with the world, you do that. However that God would speak, you do that. How they would treat the people that came to see them, you do that. However they would interact with the poor and the lowly, you do that. Now, in a very polytheistic world, there are many gods and many priests. And so, uh, if per se was a priest of a god of war, you probably would not want to visit them because they tended to be violent and you not, might not make it out of there. Uh, gods of romantic love, on the other hand, were very popular to go visit. But our God was different. And so he says to the people, your role is to represent me to the world. Whatever I do, you do. However I am, you are. And that's rule number one of a priest. Rule number two is they represent people to God. They draw people in and say, hey, do you know this God? Not just by their words, but by their behavior. That's a key distinction. But by my behavior, you see how this God is. And we draw people in and say, hey, whatever you need, we are here for that. And also to get your needs before whatever God we are talking about. In this case, is it like worship that needs to happen? Is it like a sacrifice that needs to happen? Because that was the deal back then. Or is it like a prayer request or something? What is going on? We bring that before the God for you. And that is the role of a priest. Represent God to people, represent people to God. And they are called to be a kingdom of priests, as in every single person has that job. And it lasts a month. Uh, Moses dilly-dallies on the mountain, apparently. Uh, It's about 40 days, and the people are still at the base of it, and they're like, he's probably dead. Uh, We should move on, figure out a different way of being, and so they worship a golden calf, uh, which, if it weren't so bloody, would be a hilarious situation, how God has to solve that. But all of a sudden, they go from a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests. That actual situation is how Levi, the tribe of Levi, ends up being the only priests in all of Israel. And so very quickly, they botch it again. And it's like, God's like, here's what I have for you. And then they botch it, and he's like, well, we got to go with a subpar version already, but at least you have some priests. Going back to your table of contents, the rest of that DTR conversation happens, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Eventually, God keeps his word in the book of Joshua. They take back their land. They have a hard time settling it, but they get some of it. Uh, Judges is a pretty grim book. Read that on your own time. Also includes civil war and a bunch of things that are not decent to say in public. (laughs) Ruth happens as a happy note in the midst of that time. But then the books of Samuel kick off. And the people begin to be actually united from their weird tribal confederation into one solid nation under a guy named Saul He's not super good, so he gets replaced by David, like David and Goliath, David. David started as a shepherd, killed a bear and a lion, and then eventually became King David. Yeah, that guy. And he ascends his way to the throne of a united Israel. And through the prophet Nathan, God has some more things to say about his word and what he's going to do. But listen to exactly how God's going to put this. It's going to sound surprisingly familiar to what we've already mentioned. 
in 2 Samuel 7, it says this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore and they, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In case we do not remember, forever is a very long time. But all of the language in here sounds like those previous two promises God had made. Land, family, you're going to have a home. Like people are going to have rest from enemies. Things are going to come together. I'm going to make your name great. On top of that, he makes David two more promises that he intends to capitalize on. Number one, a kingdom. Number two, that there's a king. That there will be a kingdom forever that doesn't get moved. And that there will also be a king somehow related to this David guy forever. This is all contingent still on this whole, as long as you obey me deal, which God said in the define the relationship discussion, both in Exodus and what we read, and also the entire book of Deuteronomy is like terms of the covenant. That's what that book is. Unfortunately, things go downhill again rather quickly. David does pretty good, but the end of his life makes some noteworthy mistakes. Then his son Solomon makes two good choices. Uh, God offers him everything and he asks for wisdom. Good. Builds the temple of God. Good. Uh, from there, it gets very, 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 very bad. So bad that after him, there's a civil war and the kingdom splits in half. Uh, the northern ten tribes become called Israel. The southern one is called Judah. And they never come back together. The people continually disobey God. No matter how often God sends prophets, they continue in their disobedience, so much so that both are destroyed. Both get carried off into exile, and very, very, very few come back from that. And that is where your Old Testament ends. But that's a big problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, the people are very aware that it's their own fault they lost it. But God did make some promises. And what's he going to do with his word about that? Like, if you look at the list of promises that we're about to throw on the screen here, right, the issue of land uh, got destroyed, they got taken out of it, they got exiled. That's a big problem. Uh, family, most extended family that became a nation, they're mostly dead. Priests, we already talked about that did not go well. Kingdom, burned to the ground. King, all the Davidic kings are gone as well. The people know it's their fault. But into that mess, what is God going to do? If you look back to your table of contents, there's a named list of guys at the end of your Old Testament. Isaiah through Malachi... 
And those are all prophets. Some of them are toward the end of the kingdom uh, before they go into exile. Some are during the exile, and a few of them are after. And they're all basically holding the people to the standard of God, saying you did or did not, usually did not, hold up to God's rules. You whiffed, but they're calling them back to obedience to the Lord. It's also in that time of exile where the written word becomes super important to these people. That's when they're actually collecting the books that we know as our Old Testament. They were written before that moment, but they're actually collecting them, bringing them in, in, the or, in orders that like, we would recognize today. Because their way of connecting to God because their land was destroyed was through the written word. They're like, we have so little, but at least we have what God has already said. It's also in this time that prayer becomes important or even more important. Because again, that's like their only connection left. They also start collecting these books of wisdom, which you notice after uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is when the people come back from exile. But then they get Esther, that's in exile. And then Job, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is some of that wisdom literature of like, hey, sometimes things don't work out and we don't know why. Psalms, is that like, Old Testament hymnal, like that the people would sing. And so not only are they collecting these meaningful written things, but they're also singing the faithfulness of God, even though they are having some missteps. Hmm. Their connection to God is brutally important through written word and singing worship songs. From there, You've got Proverbs, which essentially is, hey, generally speaking, if you do these things, things go well. The book after that is Ecclesiastes. And it's like, hey, there are some loopholes to that, uh, sometimes not. And then right after that, you get Song of Songs. Definitely about sex. Regardless of whatever allegorical interpretations have happened since that thing was written, it is 100% a celebration of sex the way God intended it. God thinks sex is a very good thing. He has a specific place for that between a husband and a wife. But it's actually a good thing created by God, which is one of those things that we've kind of missed on purity culture because, yes, we're emphasizing wait till marriage, but then also we, like, shame people for thinking about it beforehand or, like, so bad that, like, everything else goes poorly. Need to have some balance. But also, like, if you're not, like, great with the poetry, by the way, you're like, you read Song of Songs and you're like, oh, these people were really into gardening. Metaphors, people. That's one of those time delay jokes that people continually laugh one after another. And that's where the people stand. They have their wisdom literature, they have prayer, they have the singing of worship songs, and they have the written word. And they're waiting to see what God is going to do with all these promises that he's made. Y'all, it is 400 years years between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. What if something you prayed today took 40 years to see an answer to? Would you still be praying? What if prayers and things that you ask God for, only your grandkids eventually got the blessing of? Would you still pray? What if every prayer we throw up to God today 
It is 400 years before he answers. First of all, would those prayers still matter 400 years from now? Secondly, would we invest in ourselves, in our kids, in our grandkids, in every friend we have, in our church family, that even if we don't see it right away, keep praying. Eventually, God will do what he's going to do. Would we pray like that? That's the story of that one page between Malachi and Matthew. People desperately praying that God does something with these old promises that they broke. It's into that desperation that Jesus steps on the scene. And listen to what his first speech is. It's going to sound familiar. In Mark chapter 1, it says this. After his buddy John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Kingdom. That's the first word out of Jesus' mouth. That old promise that we thought was dead? No, no. He's got a plan for that. Unfortunately, some of the people uh, misinterpreted what Jesus was saying. They thought he was going to make Israel great again, and that was not on the menu for him. He had some bigger ideas than that. But he starts preaching and teaching and showing people what life in the kingdom of God is like. If you're curious what a kingdom of God person kind of looks like, read Matthew 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Very countercultural, very clear, and wow. But Jesus not only teaches with such authority and brilliance that people are like, this dude's really on to something. He starts healing people. And they're like, okay, we can work with this. He starts doing other miracles. Like, he somehow controls the weather? Like, that is nuts. And they're like, okay, there's something different about this guy. And a huge crowd begins to follow him. But he does not do their agenda. He does his own agenda. And the religious establishment of the day decides that that is worth killing him for. But remember... It's not just these promises that are outstanding that he's got to deal with. This brokenness where sin and death entered the world, that needs an answer too. One of my favorite little fun facts about the Bible. A couple weeks ago, Elijah taught through as far as gospel used to be like a Roman word that we co-opted and now that means what Christians believe and people forget that it was even something else. The end of the gospel of Mark is fascinating because the trip that Jesus makes to the cross, what he endures, the words used about it, are identical to a Roman coronation ceremony. Minus the fact that Jesus dies and kings got crowns. Although there is a crown involved in Jesus's. Somehow, by going to the cross, Jesus became king. 
Not only that, but sin took its best shot at him on the cross. And when sin did its worst, death took its best shot at Jesus. And three days later, he came out of a grave declaring victory. Because Jesus is better than both. Jesus reigns over both. Jesus can't get beaten by either one. See, if we stop the story of the gospel at the cross, sin gets kicked in the teeth, but death is still a problem. We needed resurrection. Jesus climbs out of a grave to declare victory over both. But somehow, from there, the story gets spread of what Jesus has done. That's what the book of Acts is in your New Testament. It's the early followers of Jesus bringing this message to everybody. Then the rest of the New Testament, minus that one little book at the end, which we'll get to, is letters written from early church pastors to their congregations dealing with issues that are going on for them. One of the biggest issues is what's this identity of this Jesus character? But listen to how they actually talk about Jesus. Uh, For example, Romans chapter 1, right off the top, this is how Paul starts that letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Remember that blessing to all nations we were waiting on? Because, see, it started off with a blessing that was really for the people of Israel. That word Gentile means not Israelite, or specifically not Jewish. Which, unless your mother is Jewish, you're a Gentile. The reason we have faith is because of the work of Christ through his cross and resurrection, which brings all people in. We are indebted to the work of Jesus that we get to have this faith and meet together with a hundred of your closest friends and talk about it. It is the work of Jesus and nothing else. But on top of that, we needed that large extended family that grew into a nation, right? That was a promise of God in the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, yeah, everybody who's a Christian, you're a part of the family. Congratulations. That's what he takes as his own. And then Peter, another one of these early church pastors, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is where it gets nuts. This is written, by the way, to a mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles, right? But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So to recap, the role of Christian is royal priest. The role of Christian is priest of Jesus which means we have two jobs. 
represent Jesus to the world and the world to Jesus. Whatever Jesus would do, we do. Whatever he would say, we say. However he would treat the poor, that's how we treat the poor. However he would treat rich people, that's how we treat rich people. However he would be in your neighborhood, that's how we're supposed to be in your neighborhood. However he would be in this neighborhood where the church is, that's how we are in this community. However he would treat like his physical health, that's what we do there too. Whatever Jesus would do, we copy it. We also represent the world to Jesus through our behavior, not just our words, through our behavior, we show the world what Jesus is like. We bring people in and say, this is who Jesus is. You're going to want to know him. This is what Jesus is about. It's amazing. It's incredible. You should really hop on board. But also, that's God's plan A for how to put this mess back together. <clears throat> Whenever we represent Jesus in the world like we're supposed to, we put pieces of this mess back together. What was that greatest commandment? Like, love God with everything you have and then love your neighbor as yourself? When we do that, we're putting pieces back together. So let's start with the love God with all you have. All right. We don't read the Bible to be smarter. But when we read the Bible, we tear it apart for all it's worth. Learn as much as we can. Learn the context. Some people go super nerdy, learn the language. Like, whatever you're doing. People, like, when we actually invest deeply in the knowledge of the scriptures, it's not that we're just getting smarter. That's one way we love God with everything we've got. Also, never again with the whole Jesus never said anything to me. He left you a long note. Read it. When we set aside the best time in our day to pray and just chat with him, that is loving God. When we actually look at our lives through a lens of what would Jesus actually do in my shoes, that is representing Jesus well. The other half of that commandment, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. First of all, if you hate yourself, you're going to be trash at loving your neighbor. So let's start with you. Uh, take vacation on purpose and actually don't work. When you can rest, that is loving yourself well. At a minimum, if you have no self-esteem whatsoever and you just like can't get past like, I see my own flaws, remember, Jesus decided you were somebody worth dying for. That means you've got some value. See yourself in that light. Care about your own health. Heck, for the love of all is holy, do something about your mental health. It matters. But also, once we've established, love God with everything you have. Love yourself, because Jesus does, you should too. Love your neighbor. The uh, construction of that in Greek, which is the original language of the uh, New Testament, is actually, it's just like, love the people around you. As in, if you can see them, they count. Look at other people as people Jesus died for. That's how valuable other people are too. 
everybody in Benton Harbor, St. Joe, Stevensville, Michigan, and the world Jesus died for. However we treat them ought to be what Jesus would do. However we deal with issues in our community ought to be what Jesus would do because he values it. He also said a crazy thing that is still hard to get our minds around. Uh, love your enemies. If we're going to be royal priests of Jesus, that means that we're going to have to do that too. Believe me, as a church network, we are throwing a lot of help to Ukraine. Question, do we also pray for Russia? That would be love your enemy. Pray for people. Love people. View yourself as someone that Jesus went to a cross for because you're actually valuable. Love God with everything you have. Because also, by the way, part of loving God is loving his creation. Right? So when we don't kick stray dogs, that is loving God well. When we don't go out of our way to litter for no good reason, that is loving God well. There's a lot of things to do to represent Jesus to the world and the world to Jesus. When we're working in that space, we're doing that well. Looking for a way to summarize all of this, all the promises we've talked about, all the like narrative of Scripture and everything going on, the Apostle Paul strikes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Simply put, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. This slide of issues of these key promises that we were looking at earlier, like the idea of land, like, yeah, God kept his word in the Old Testament, but also he reiterated repeatedly, the whole earth is mine anyway. That's why the Great Commission says, go to the ends of the earth, because it's his. Family, like this extended family that grew into a nation, guess what? That's us as Christians. We are all a part of the family of God. That's good news. But also that priestly role, we just unpacked that. Kingdom, kingdom of God. And boy, do we have a king. His name is Jesus. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. <coughs> you may notice, sorry, <coughs> my throat's dry. Um, I can still smell, though. You're fine. Too soon? A... All right. Cool. Um, oh, I am bleeding, by the way. So, I left out one book. It's this lovely one at the end called Revelation. So, to address that, number one, it is apocalyptic literature, which is a genre of writing we don't really use anymore, which is why it looks so weird when you read it. You're like, I don't know what the heck that is. There's like an ocean, there's some beasts, there's something in a red cape. Like, what is happening? <clears throat> First of all, let me put some context around that. Number one, you cannot escape any set of two sentences in Revelation without a quote of the Old Testament. If you want to read Revelation well, read the rest of your Bible. It will make more sense. But also, uh, they were under the pagan oppressive boot of Rome at the time. And there's a very harsh critique of Rome sitting in Revelation. 
if they wrote that in plain language, whoever touches that letter dies. So they wrote it in metaphor. But what is very clear about that book is the picture at the end. It's a picture of restored heaven and earth. All things being put right. Healing, wholeness, things being as God intends them to be. There's one hymn that drives me nuts because I don't think it's correct, but I forgive whoever wrote it. It's fine. Uh, you know that song, I'll Fly Away? Oh, glory, I'll fly away. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll sail off to heaven into like a cosmic spaceship and won't have to deal with this place anymore? No. The picture at the end of Revelation that is promised by God is a restored heaven and earth. Heaven comes smashing into earth and both are restored to be exactly what God intends them to be. The narrative at the end of Revelation, which is also proven to by the rest of the scriptures, is that Jesus will come back. Then he will bodily resurrect everybody, as in like flesh and blood, resurrected. Then to judgment. And it's really just a matter of one question. Do you know Jesus or don't you? No, that ends in a very bad place. Please don't go there. But yes, gets to exist at rest with God in a perfectly restored heaven and earth. Where everything functions as God intended it. Where everything is as God intends it to be. Where we are all whole. Where the brokenness is done. And I know that that can sound like a fairy tale. I know that sounds real distant from how life feels right now. If you live on a block where you still should question whether you should drink the water, that sounds pretty far from now. Let me encourage you this way. God has never failed anybody yet. He's not going to start with us. Every other promise God has made has been yes and amen in Christ. We can bank that his word is going to be true again. Which means the work we do now to put pieces back together, the hard effort it is to go through actually loving our enemies, for caring about our communities, for actually helping draw people into the gospel for all it is, will pay off eternally. Pain is less of a problem when you have hope. And we have the hope. This all comes together in a restored heaven and earth where Jesus is truly king and everything is made whole. And so we can rest that that promise too will be yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for what you have done. You did what we couldn't. You went to a cross, paid debts that we didn't even know we had at the time, but boy, are they real. You resurrected and declared victory over evil. 
God, thank you that we get to be a part of your huge extended family of faith, where we get to belong somewhere, where we have a home, where we have peace, where we have joy, where we can experience something of you now. And God, for the pieces of our world that need to come back together, Empower us to be those people now that are bringing things together, that are first put together ourselves by you, but then also we get to give that gift to the world around us. And God, we know that it will all be worth it in the end, that we can rest on the fact that the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ because we know you will, you've been faithful, you're gonna be faithful, you're never going to not be faithful. And so today, give us the courage to be kingdom-minded representatives of Jesus in the world. All this we pray by your powerful name. Amen.